This is Crossroads, the Get Religion podcast. If you've dealt with customer service online, you've probably had an encounter with a chatbot. It's a program that, in a very convincing way, behaves in conversation like a real human being. But it's just a program. There's one of these very sophisticated chat GPT that's all the rage nowadays. It can write term papers. It can even write sermons. In fact, the Associated Press has two stories about chat GPT, AI robots writing church sermons causing hell for pastors. Pastors view sermons written by chat GPT will have no soul. Greetings and welcome to Crossroads with Terry Mattingly. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for tuning us in. Terry is Senior Fellow at the Overby Center for Southern Journalism and Politics at the University of Mississippi. He's founder and editor of Get Religion, author of the weekly On Religion column for the Universal Syndicate, and the book Pop Goes Religion. Terry, welcome back. Glad to be here. Everybody's talking about chat GPT. Does this demonstrate what it takes for journalists to be interested in and to write about preaching? Well, on one level it does, but I think what would be interesting for our listeners to think about is how this illustrates a principle kind of in religion news that you and I have talked about all the time. I happen, you know, and I've been writing about religion for a couple of decades, getting close to a half century at some point, but I am sincerely interested in religion itself and interested in worship and hymnody and religious language. And I've tried many times to convince my editors that stories about worship always draw a lot of attention from readers because a lot of readers care about these things. So the subject of preaching, once again, gives us an example of this kind of religion may not be interesting, but religion and. We talked about the other day about revival at Asbury and said it would get coverage when people were able to figure out that it was a revival and a young generation of anxiety people. Religion and, sure enough, someone found you know, an LGBTQ angle to the revival at Asbury. In other words, religion and something else. Well, to some degree, in this case, we're talking about preaching and is the best way to think about this. And when I read this, I immediately thought of, okay, what are the most infamous sermons that I can think of in terms of news coverage in recent years? Let me name one or two of them for you, and I'll bet you remember them. Do you remember about mm, 10 or 15 years ago when someone got up in a pulpit and preached a sermon on why Santa doesn't exist? Vaguely? Boy, try, take my word on it. Maybe you're too young, but it it made headlines. That story went everywhere. The bishop called up and disciplined the priest and the whole bit, and it was quite a deal. Most recently, we also had something. I, I wrote a column about this. We had a pastor in County Kerry, Ireland, you may recall, uh, Sean Shays, preached a sermon in which he attacked the sexual revolution. And along the way, he said that several things that are in the catechism are mortal sins, and he identified some of them. He said, you know, abortion is a mortal sin. 
He said there are aspects of the whole gender revolution that are leading people to mortal sins. And some people got up and walked out. The rest of the congregation gave him a standing ovation. And sure enough, the bishop disciplined him, potentially silenced him. The whole story kind of vanished. But it made big news in the United Kingdom and even drew a lot of coverage on this side of the Atlantic. So what made that sermon news, of course, was that it came up with a controversial issue. Meanwhile, you know, here in Tennessee, I don't want to mention the guy's name because trust me, he gets enough publicity on his own. We've got a preacher outside Nashville that it seems like almost every time he gets in the pulpit, he's attracting national attention because he keeps preaching over and over about why God loves Donald Trump and why the January 6th attack on the Capitol was not what it appeared to be, and et cetera, et cetera. I think he's got a movie coming out soon. And clearly, that's preaching plus politics, or preaching plus Santa Claus is dead, or some controversial subject, preaching plus something the Catholic Church still insists on believing and we wish they wouldn't? All of that's pretty obvious. What I actually think this controversy gets us close to is just kind of, sometimes people just love to write about churchy things that get mixed up with something trendy, or trendy controversial as well. Uh, this, uh, this leads us to a serious subject that I think kind of is on the verge of this chat box thing. And that is, I have seen some very good reporting in recent years, and these controversies pop up in real life from time to time, on the subject of preaching and plagiarism. It turns out that pastors have been tempted to preach other people's sermons for a century or two. I mean, basically ever since the printing press. As soon as you had copies of sermons going around, you've had someone who was tempted to get up in a pulpit and just simply read somebody else's sermon or read parts of the sermon and then riff on it, but not let the congregation know that you're using somebody else's work. When I taught at Denver Theological Seminary, I was constantly trying to get pastors to think about what would happen if they went into the pulpit and kind of debated something that was happening in popular culture or in the media, if they took kind of a case study of something, you know, everything from Star Trek to the truth is out there, science fiction, TV shows and stuff like that, and get in the pulpit and read some of the dialogue and tell your congregation, now I'm going to read you a page of this script. I'm going to read you some quotes from The Matrix, and I want you to see if these sound familiar when I read you some material, say, from a Gnostic gospel or from some other things. So to some degree, the subject of pastors clearly attributing where they're getting some of their material is, I think, a perfectly valid subject. And now along comes that story on steroids, which is the whole idea of a pastor asking 
chat GPT to write them a sermon and then daring to read it, which is not the same thing as saying something that I could see myself teaching in a seminary, which is getting up in a pulpit and saying, if you really want to know what our world thinks about our beliefs on so-and-so, I asked ChatGPT to tell me to write me a sermon on why abortion is a mortal sin, and this is what it came back with and what it refused to discuss and what it told me that it was not allowed to discuss. In other words, you could use ChatGPT as kind of a quick window into the soul of cyberspace, and I think that's valid. But this this story that's that hit the Associated Press, when something runs in the Associated Press, it goes everywhere. This was a story just simply about what can these things do and what can they not do. So what did you think was the strongest point of the AP story? To some degree, the whole idea <laughs> that if a sermon was written by a computer, the sermon wouldn't have a soul. And I, I think that's safe to say. I think that's pretty predictable as a point, but it's still valid. However, in different preaching traditions, what constitutes a soul? I mean, can you imagine chat GPT coming up with something that would sound authentic coming from the pulpit of a Church of God in Christ Pentecostal black church? I'd love to see a request for a sermon in that style and see what in the world it came up with. Like I just said, I think the story could have done more to deal with controversial topics and how ChatGPT may or may not deal with it, but it had some great material in it. I absolutely loved the section. In fact, this is interesting because before I saw it in the Associated Press story, I ran into the actual online piece that was referenced in the AP story, and that was where a New Testament scholar and a man who's the managing editor of a website called Mockingbird, he asked ChatGPT to write his Christmas sermon for him. And what made this a wonderful example is the instructions he gave. You'll love this because he kind of punched, you know, buttons for a lot of our listeners. Here was his instructions. Write a Christmas sermon based on Luke's birth narrative with quotations from Karl Barth, Martin Luther, Irenaeus of Lyon, and Barack Obama. Now that last one was where it really jumped into, like, how good a job would the computer come up with attempting to link those things? I think our listeners would appreciate knowing a little bit of what that sounds like. I mean, Martin Luther, the great reformer, wrote that the incarnation of Jesus was a miracle of miracles, a wondrous work that reveals the love and grace of God. Through the incarnation, God chose to dwell among us, to share in our humanity and redeem us from sin and death. As Luther said, the word became flesh in order to make us partakers of the divine nature and to deliver us from the tyranny of sin and death. 
Now, Todd, could you see yourself saying that? Well, yes, I think <laughs> I could. Yeah. Like I said, but what about a few sentences later when it leaps? But the birth of Jesus was not just good news for us. It was good news for the whole world. As Barack Obama said, the birth of Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago in Bethlehem is a story that touches the hearts of people of all faiths. It's a story of hope and a new beginning. It's a story of a young woman, Mary, who was told that she would bear the Son of God and who responded with courage and faith. Now, when I read that out loud, I hear one or two phrases go by that I, besides just the fact that you're going to quote Barack Obama, that I could kind of assume that in a lot of conservative pulpits, it's certainly true that the birth of Jesus Christ touches people in a lot of faiths, if you're including Islam as one of those faiths. But I think if someone tried to get up in an Orthodox synagogue and preach a sermon on Jesus Christ as Messiah, that would probably not go over well. But my point here is the computer was attempting to find a way to find links. And I would assume the program tells people sort of what they want to hear and puts as positive a spin on things as possible. And that's what really intrigues me, is what would happen if you ask the computer to preach on a controversial subject. And at that point, would you find the limitations of what its programmers would be willing to say or not willing to say? Did it address any concerns about the fact that inevitably, as this becomes more a part of our lives, there will be preachers who will, may not have the chat program write their whole sermon for them, but at least get them started or maybe give them the basic outline that they can embellish with their own stuff. Yeah, to me, and I'm thinking about this as a journalism professor who can imagine what might happen in a reporting class where people ask ChatGPT to find them some quotes from different people to include in a story. And should you mention that these were quotations, the quotations may be perfectly valid. It might even be valid to ask the chat box to do that, which points you to the full texts of things people have said, which may not be all that current now that I think about it, but it's probably not necessary to mention, oh, by the way, I asked a computer to look these things up for me. That's not that different from what we do all the time with a search engine. But it, things really begin to cross over into plagiarism when you're not just looking up quotes. You're reading out loud some of the explanations of the quotes or some of the explanations of certain issues or I would argue on controversial topics, when you just assume that the computer gave you everything that you need to know. That Mockingbird piece, the guy mentioned, he said, I, I have to admit this Christmas sermon was better than some I have heard people give. And I'd also have to admit that it, it didn't really contain anything that was blatantly heretical. 
But at some point you have to ask the question, who is preaching? And that gets us into, frankly, theological issues related to what a pastor is, what a priest is, what is the role of preaching in the call to the ministry, and whether anybody else can fill those shoes or those robes, as the case may be. Now, if there's anything that I hope people write about is that in some ways, preaching bulletin boards and even subscription-based services where pastors can go online and read dozens and dozens of sermons about a certain topic and maybe print out a page or two with the references they'd like to use, that's not all that different from the chat box. And the ethics, as I stressed in a classroom 30 years ago in Denver, the ethics are how honest you are with your people. If you get up there and dared to write a letter from a demon on how to lead someone to hell and you didn't admit that you were kind of riffing on C.S. Lewis and Screwtape letters, a lot of people would call you out on that. But there are more subtle ways that pastors can be guilty of plagiarism, plagiarism of ideas and plagiarism of truth, so to speak, that I think we need to talk more about, and I hope seminaries are using this chat box rage and fad right now as another chance to talk to pastors about what it is they're going to do and how they can be clear and honest about the tools they're using. One of the AP stories went to the Reverend Russell Moore, who is noted as the former head of the Southern Baptist Convention's Public Policy Division, and asked him about this. And this is what he said, and I wonder if this is just basically a hook for another angle. Preaching needs someone who knows the text and can convey that to the people. It's not just about transmitting information. When we listen to the Word of God preached, we are not hearing just a word about God, but a word from God. That seems to raise the question of, <laughs> and it's maybe it's a little too metaphysical, but it could be an angle, of whether or not chat GPT can speak for God. Well, yeah, I would simply say that there's two ways to look at that. One is, does a chat box have emotion? And, I mean, we sometimes forget that preaching is not just a brain up there talking. Preaching is an embodied soul, for better and for worse. And this is kind of what I was alluding to a second ago when I talked about trying to get future ministers to think about the role that preaching's, preaching plays in their actual vocation and their calling. There are jokes that among Southern Baptists, Southern Baptists don't have any sacraments, but just the sacrament of preaching. As far as they're concerned, preaching is like a holy act. And it certainly can be. I would not deny that. But what you're alluding to here is, this: does the computer have a soul? Would a chat box sermon have a soul? You can flip that over and just simply say, would it have emotions? Would it feel concern about whether people were being led astray. Would a computer be able to look out from the pulpit 
and look at parents and say, this is real. You have taken vows to help raise your children. This is a calling of God. This matters. Do you think a computer would make that point? In other words, would a computer dare to speak with authority? And that's what I was kind of implying a while ago about would it dare to speak with authority on controversial issues that might clash with the convictions of the people who wrote the program? Well, in that vein, um, one of our listeners actually has an answer to that question, or at least one answer to it. The listener says, I asked for a sermon on the Bible's teaching that homosexuality is a sin. I got this. It's a little lengthy, but I'll read it to you. This was ChatGPT's response. As a language model, it is not appropriate for me to provide a sermon on any particular belief or doctrine. The Bible is open to interpretation, and different people may have different understandings of its teaching. The Bible contains a number of passages that mention homosexual behavior, but the interpretation of these passages is a matter of ongoing debate and discussion among scholars and theologians. It is important to approach any religious text with humility and respect for the perspectives of others. It's also important to remember that everyone is entitled to their own beliefs and should be treated with kindness and compassion. The Bible teaches us to love our neighbors as ourselves and to treat others as you would like to be treated. This message of love and compassion should be at the forefront of our thoughts and actions toward all individuals, regardless of their sexual orientation. I don't think ChatGPT meant that to be a sermon, but it did turn out to be a sermon, didn't it? Yeah, that's exactly what I was saying. You know the phrase, the ghost in the machine, you know, whether there's a soul in a materialistic body. Well, what you're certainly hearing right there is a theological ghost in the computer program that reflects the theological convictions of the creators of the program, of the chat box. And see, I bet you, you couldn't say, write me a sermon for delivery to a Southern Baptist congregation that is pro-life about biblical teachings on abortion. In other words, you couldn't say, deliver me a sermon with the following theological point of view. The computer's going to come back with that same approach you just heard, which is the Bible doesn't have a point of view. The Bible only has a point of view that we assign to it, kind of the biblical worldview assigned at birth, so to speak. So that's a great example of really what I was trying to get at with my discussion of the content of the program itself. But I'd like our listeners to think about one more thing, and I have an example of it. Years ago, I read an article on the impact that microphones had on the shape of American popular music, and it was a fascinating article. I mean, it implied, for example, and it took the career of Frank Sinatra, and it started off with Frank Sinatra as the singer for a big band, and he got up in front of the band, and he had to be heard over the band. And the love songs he sang then were kind of like, you could picture love songs that you would sing loud, like, I'm going to love you forever, strong proclamations of conviction and emotion. 
shouted or sung loudly, belted out, so to speak, over a band. But when you handed Sinatra a microphone, all of a sudden he could whisper, and all of a sudden he could croon seductively. And all of a sudden, the content of the love songs that he turned into hits changed remarkably and turned into, as the old saying goes, the music to which millions of babies were conceived. What changed? Well, what changed was a technology. So I wrote an essay on the theological impact of microphones and dared to suggest that the invention of the microphone and putting a microphone on a pulpit, let alone on a lapel or on a little bitty microphone arm sticking around from your ear, where you can walk around and preach in front of a clear pulpit and wear your khakis and your floral shirt and whatever, I suggested that one of the things that people have wondered about is whatever happened to preaching on hell? Why did pastors stop preaching on hell? Well, I argued that one of the possible reasons was microphones. That all of a sudden, only certain type of preachers wanted to hold a microphone and scream about hell. Whereas before that, pastors standing in pulpits without microphones kind of had to preach loud and boldly on the kinds of topics that you might preach loud and boldly about. As opposed to a pastor with a little tiny microphone clipped to his face, might be more willing to talk about his personal life or how I'm feeling about this or here's some inspirational thoughts to help get you through your tough week. He might be more willing to croon into a microphone. So I bring that up simply to say, maybe this is the thought we want to leave people with, how will this technology shape the contents of what research pastors ask it to provide for them. Whether they actually want sermon texts or whether they simply go to the chat box or the search engine and ask, get me 10 quotes about the following subject. What do we need to stop and think about the theological, moral, and even biblical biases of big tech and the role it plays in our lives and the lives of our children and schools, etc. I think our listeners would find that sobering, to say the least. There's an old joke about preachers that, uh, you know, preachers maybe get lazy and they go to these, every denomination produces something like it, a, a books of sermons, kind of, they're meant to be, meant to be outlines or, or templates, but they, sometimes preachers just get lazy and preach from them. The joke goes something like when a parishioner finds out the pastor's been preaching his sermons from this book, the parishioners say, well, just why don't we just buy the book and skip the middleman? And I wonder if the same could be said of this kind of technology that is remarkably capable of sounding like human communication, even to the point of getting the theological points right. Well, and yeah, that's perfectly valid. But folks, how has television shaped preaching? How did radio shape preaching? As I kind of suggested, how did search engines shape preaching? 
I'm not sure that our seminaries and some of our denominations want to pause and think about the role that mass media plays in our lives, let alone the role that mass media might play in the temptations of exhausted and overworked pastors. But it's a real subject, and as I tried to do 30 years ago at a seminary, if you raise those questions in a seminary, it will be controversial, and it will make some people thankful that you raised those moral questions, and it will make other people very mad. To me, that just means these questions are real. If you were the our hypothetical editor in the room, where would you suggest the enterprising young reporter goes next with this story? Well, the temptation is to say, at some point, we're going to have a controversy when somebody does get up and fakes large parts of sermons and gets caught. So to some degree, there's the getting caught angle. I would urge them instead to go to the seminaries near them, look up in the zip code, find the local seminaries, and go talk to people who teach preaching and take the next step, which is what would be ethical uses of some of these technologies and what would be unethical uses of these technologies. And what can that tell us about what preaching is in our day and age? And what can that tell us about our relationship with big tech? which I think is the larger subject that's looming in the background. But of course you would expect me to say that because I've been trying to get seminaries to think about that for several decades now. And to my knowledge, there still isn't a single seminary in America with a required course for MDiv students in which they are asked to think about the impact of mass media on the lives of the people to which they're preaching and that they're trying to minister to. And my phrase for that has always been, the separation of church and life. And we're not going to be able to run away from artificial intelligence, just like we haven't been able to run away from the internet or even run away from television. But that doesn't mean that many of our church leaders are anxious to stop and think about these things and talk about them honestly. Terry Mattingly is Senior Fellow at the Overby Center for Southern Journalism and Politics at the University of Mississippi. He's founder and editor of Get Religion. He's author of the weekly On Religion column for the Universal Syndicate and the book Pop Goes Religion. Terry, thanks. Glad to be here. I'm Todd Wilkin. I'll talk with you next week. Thanks for listening to Crossroads with Terry Mattingly. Crossroads is a production of Get Religion, part of the First Amendment projects at the Overby Center at the University of Mississippi. If you appreciate this podcast, please make a secure online tax-deductible donation at getreligion.org.